Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. And for the last few podcasts, we have been talking about a case of wrongful conviction, um, the case of Dean McKee. I encourage people who have been listening to um, please go back and listen to the two podcasts with Seth Miller, who is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. And he was uh, Dean's lawyer in the case. He represented him over quite a few years. Uh, I guess it was maybe about nine years, eight years, something like that. Um, And last podcast, we had Dean McKee with us and Danny, his uh, Danny Cutler, his fiance, who didn't get a chance to say too much. So this program, I would very much like to um, have have Danny speak to us. And Dean, I encourage you to please um, chime in when you have something you would like to add. Uh, You you just scolded me that she didn't get to talk, so I'm going to be quiet. Oh, no, I wasn't scolding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right. So what, what I find very interesting about your story, when I say your, I mean the two of you, is um, the the length of time you've actually known each other. And I, I just learned that not very, very long ago. So, Dani, how, take us back and tell us how you knew Dean and, and what time in your life that was. Well, um, I had moved to Florida from Virginia in 1987, and I met Dean... Um, he tried to run my toes over with his PK Ripper bicycle at a skateboard competition. <laughs> and it took him three times to get my attention. And I think I fell madly in love with him at that point. I thought he was the cutest boy I ever saw. And not only was he cute, but he was very sweet and kind and uh, just a good-hearted person. And he became probably the first, well, he was definitely the first person I trusted as a friend when I moved down here. And we were 15 years old at the time. I was just going to ask you that. 15, my goodness. So you were attending what high school at that point in time? I was at Largo High School. He was at Clearwater. Oh, so there were different different high schools. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. And so then... What, what you know, take us through um, what happened uh, shortly thereafter when Dean was uh, 16. Well, um, we uh, met one night at a teen club, and he had been very um, sad, and his friends were all worried about him, and So we had a long conversation, and at that point, I always knew um, that the truth about the situation that Dean was innocent, and um, when all of this went to trial, my parents had taken me away for the week of the trial because they were concerned that I was trying to get a ride to to go there because I wanted to speak up for Dean. And um, at that point, my 
father was concerned about my name being all over the newspaper and being associated with this crime that had happened. So he was trying to prevent that, which I understand at this age. But um, after realizing how um, unjustly and unfairly the actual trial went, um, I, I was... I could never understand how they could have convicted somebody um, that was innocent. And it kind of um, turned me into a social activist and later an environmental activist because I, um, <laughs> I had a real strong, uh, I just couldn't, it was very difficult for me to believe that the system that was supposed to work for people, I've always been raised to you know, be taught that you know, our government is, um, on our side and I grew up in Washington DC and I always believed that and this was my first real taste of injustice and mm -hmm. it stuck with me and I um it, it was very discouraging at such a young age yeah I would I would certainly think so mm -hmm. so when so you you hadn't known Dean very long when yeah. he, he went to prison and then there are decades uh, between then and now. So mm -hmm. how, how did that friendship um, survive all those years when he was locked up? Um, just writing, um, um, you know, occasionally back and forth um, visits. And mm -hmm. we were, um, you know, I kept telling him that we were just friends. <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> because at, young, at a young age I was uh, I was um, told by a counselor because I was so just dis distraught over this incident that it would be harder for um, Dean to do the time um, and be connected to like friends and people on the outside because I guess we were kids and um, kids can be wishy-washy I'm not really sure what the reasoning was but um he, uh, when I, when we started writing and getting in contact and I kept telling him we're just going to be friends. One day he asked me, who are you trying to convince that we're just <laughs> friends, me or you? <laughs> and I was like, well, you, of course. <laughs> but weren't, weren't there times where you lost contact with Dean or am I wrong about that? No, no. Yes. Um, there was a long period of time that I... Um, had originally tried to write letters to him, but they kept coming back to the house and I was getting in trouble for writing him. <laughs> and then um, it was many years later that I finally got the courage to send him one of the letters that I had written over the years and, you know, just back and forth. And uh, we were friends for a long time before we fell in love. <laughs> oh, that's we great. I fell in love before that, but. <laughs> and you, um, let's talk about you for a moment. Uh, you are a teacher at the middle school level, uh, teaching science, correct? Yes, ma'am. And, uh, you, um, have three children. They're all grown, right? Yeah. Yes, I yeah. do. Wow. That's so you, you kind of went on with your life um, while Dean was in prison. So uh, that that's that's fascinating to me that 
you followed your own path. You you have a master's. Is it in, in environmental science? Your master's. Well, my master's is in education. My um, education. In environmental science. Okay. All and right. Uh huh. And did you always believe that Dean would be free one day? I believed that because I believed that when they said 25 to life, that that would be the case. Um, you know, after 25 years, I figured, you know, I had tried to contact him at one point and um, the, I couldn't figure out where he was. And I, I thought maybe at that point they had released him because he was innocent. This is before we had internet mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But when I had called the Department of Corrections trying to um, find him, um, and I don't think they had, you know, was, we didn't have the internet at that point. So it was hard to keep track of people like it is now. But, um, you know, I wondered, often wondered, like, how he was. And, I mean, it was a... It was almost, um, and, I, and I've tried to explain to Dean, because a lot of the, our friends, we were so young when he went in. Um, I think a lot of um, kids were um, reinforced by their parents. Um, you know, they wanted us to to live our life a certain way and to stay out of trouble and to keep us from harm and, and the kinds of things that... Um, young child that went to prison at the age of 16 um they probably knew a lot more about like the effects that that would have on somebody and they were probably concerned about you know us being in contact and i think at that age a lot of parents really were trying to shelter us yeah and um so can you understand that as a parent yourself Absolutely. <laughs> right. Under right. that, like, what would I do? You know? That's right. That's right. Yeah, change places with your parents. Yeah. What What was it like when you um, finally did begin to visit Dean? And Dean, I don't know how many prisons you were in over 30 years. Uh, did they move you around a great deal? Well, the Panhandle, the middle of the state, Miami. Oh, boy. All over all over. So in terms of visiting Danny, how, how did that work? Um, how far away was he, um, in the farthest prison that you visited him? Um, Everglades, uh, down by Miami. Um, and it was a beautiful drive. <laughs> <laughs> long, I would guess. Right? Long. A long, beautiful drive. I would leave after work on a Friday and then I'd spend the night in the parking lot of the casino. Oh. <laughs> and I, I, in my defense, I told her, please do not do that because I worry about her safety. He did. Yeah. And so then I, I just fibbed to him and say I wasn't doing that. <laughs> but you were. <laughs> wow. So the, the visits, I, I visit eight people in four different prisons, so I'm very familiar with what visiting is like, but for you, what what was that like? Um, I was really oblivious to 
the structure of the whole thing. And I mean, I kind of just went in there thinking that, you know, we're going to just hang out and it was going to just be like a very relaxed environment. And I, um, I think I raised the eyebrows of a lot of the staff in the sense that I was probably, I'm kind of an open hearted, open spirit, free spirit. And I think I came in there a little too free spirited just <laughs> with my friendliness and everything, but um, they got used to it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, but I wasn't expecting. Um, I just, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so much negativity. Yeah, it's a lot of negativity. I mean, getting to know people and and just understanding the plight that Dean had been through and uh, it. It was very, um, it's very difficult to see people that you care about and people that you learn to care about knowing what they're going through and that when you leave the visiting park, what they're going back to all the, the negativity right. and the violence and the danger and right. the yeah. craziness. It's, there's a lot of danger. Indeed. Yeah. For, for you, Dean, wasn't, um, the, weren't the visits from Danny um, a a spirit lifter? Would you say? I mean, um, would you would you have been better without them uh, or well, with them? I, I was better for it, but there's also the bittersweet component mm -hmm. uh, when it ends, and yeah. you know, you get you get your brief hug and your really brief kiss, and That's right. you got the police telling you, "Break it up, break." I'll take your ass to jail, uh, which is a confinement inside prison. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to leave, and but you also know that, you know, like, I know she was emotional when she's getting in her car and she's leaving and going back to her life. And I got to turn around and go back into that madness. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have traded it. I, I wish it would have been easier because I tried pushing her away because I knew how hard it was. And I didn't know when I was coming home, if I ever was coming home. That's right. The system, the parole system, uh, they had the juvenile uh, resentencing stuff going on at that time too, which they slammed the door onto that. So. You're talking about the. Yes. There was the oh. Atwell case about juveniles. Right. Well, there's also Miller, uh, the Miller Rep. case. Miller. Yeah. And the idea of um, ha having a mandatory life without parole sentence given to a child. In essence, right. you, you were a child in the eyes of the law. And that began to change in uh, the early 2000s right. with some of the, uh, the statutes from the Supreme Court. But even today, uh, states are not in any great, great hurry to change the sentences of children that have give, been given a life without parole sentence, a mandatory life without right. parole. It's happening, but very, very slow. Very, very, very slow. Very, very well, there's, there's, a, there's another component, too, and I think some of the parole commissioners um, had not public, but they were worried about paroling somebody like me that has been in prison so long and worry about if I would be able to transition, mm -hmm. uh, which is a catch 22. Um, 
know, I, I, I would, I mean, I've, I've proven them wrong on that. Um, I function very well out here in the sense that, you know, I had a steady job. I, I, I do the right things. I, I have no uh, uh, contact with law enforcement. Um, actually, some of the people that work in the, the plaza where I'm at, actually a, a former detective, and knew my story, and we get along. So that would be the only contact has been a positive thing for, for me with law enforcement. Um, um, so I, I think that you, I, I think the, the length that a juvenile would have in prison is extremely different than an adult. Um, not only longevity, but the experience of life about you know they had a house they had a job they probably had their own family um the mechanisms in their mind are totally different from the experience of um you know a minor child that got into whatever they did whether they did it or they didn't do it fundamentally they're not on the same playing field as an adult right to keep them in prison that long and then to use that against them when it comes time to evaluate whether they're ready for society again is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And may Go I ahead, Dean. Yes, please. May I say about, um, you had asked earlier about if I had ever thought Dean was going to come home. Right. And as a, a child who was ignorant to the system at the time until I started coming to visit Dean again, and realizing and going to the status review hearings and watching um, the state um, forget papers and they'd put you know a status review for another four months and then she'd forget to put some papers into a, a file or whatever it was. It was about a year and a half worth of just forgetting to do things. So they had to keep postponing and postponing. And I started to realize um, just how the system worked so badly against people that were trying to prove their innocence or trying to um, start their life over or have a chance at freedom. And um, there became a point where I wasn't sure if Dean was ever going to come home because I saw mm -hmm how um, poorly they were treating, not just his individual case, many other cases that I talked to families and, and people and I'd been researching. And uh, I really started to wonder if Dean was ever gonna come home. Because once I realized how, um, I don't wanna say absolutely corrupt, but how <laughs> the system doesn't necessarily work for the it's people. Broken. It is broken. And yeah. I started really doubting and wondering if it was a possibility and it made me want to fight for him even more because it was just so unfair and he's such a good man and and I knew he didn't do it. And, and right. none of us, my family, my mother, um, she grew up a staunch Republican and she is totally disgruntled with the system now because she can't believe just what they've done to him, you know? Yeah. And, and that's one person. Yes, and well. and not not only that, you had the Innocence um, Project of Florida in your corner. There are men and women who are fighting to overturn their 
their verdicts and they're all by themselves. They, mm -hmm. they have no one helping them. So even with that, it's fascinating to me that you felt so discouraged because you had someone so powerful and passionate behind you, which is exactly. Seth and, and yeah, that's right. You did have the very, the very, very best. Well, we're, we're coming down to uh, almost the end of our podcast and our time with you both, which has been wonderful. And I, I wondered if you could speak to challenges you both face now that Dean is no longer incarcerated. What, what are the challenges? They're probably very different depending on, you know, each of you. What would you say the challenges are? Um, I guess <laughs> paying all these bills <laughs> and, and fees and the tattoo artist license fees and yeah. I got a, I paroled, I paroled a Australian Shepherd when I got out from the I didn't like them being in the little cell and then I had to pay a fee every year to let him be my dog and I, I don't understand oh. that so was there a puppies behind bars program at your prison? Um, no, I. There was a place by my work, and she took me there. I guess uh, the lady couldn't take care of the dogs, and I guess she had bought chickens from them in the past. And I seen his little face in that little cell, and he I gave see. me that look like, "Please <laughs> get me out of here." And I told the lady, uh, "Ma'am, I I want to parole him," and she looked at me like I was crazy. Oh, I, I understand now what you're saying. I, I misunderstood you because there there are puppy programs in, in the prisons that are just fantastic. And they're, they provide so much company uh, because they live with you in, in right. your cell. And uh, then you train them and give them up to a, an Iraqi veteran or someone who's blind. Uh, so that's what I thought you were saying. But yeah, the realities of life, as Danny was saying in the background, that's that's very true. So as as we as we close the program, what parting thoughts do you wish to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't talked about? Well, I would stress appreciate your freedom. It is the most precious thing that you have because if you are free you can do anything that you choose to do as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else right right enjoy it and don't think that it can't be taken from you so savor it nourish it build it yeah appreciate it right yeah and Danny, what would you say about any parting thoughts you have I would just like to say that um, all the, the families that are fighting for their loved ones, just keep fighting and supporting and loving and being there for the people that you love because they need that so much. And it's such a blessing in the life. And I, um, I'm just so grateful Dean is home. I'm so grateful to the Innocence Project and to all of you that support them. And it's what makes stories like his possible because he that's would right. not be home no he wouldn't no that's very very true yeah that that would be that would be uh, my thought too is that, uh, to support the work of the innocence project of florida or any innocence project wherever people are listening right. uh, 
as I said in the other podcast, that uh, Seth is president of a worldwide network of projects all over the United States. There's one in every state almost, and then one in many, many countries around the world. And right. we have listeners that are all over the globe. And so I would say, um, please um, do support your project, your local uh, innocence. A, a, a side note, ma'am? Yes. The volunteers, the interns, the donors, people that are involved in pushing and research and donating money, allow Seth and that wonderful team. And we need to mention Miss Melissa Montel, which was a oh, yeah. uh, wonderful lady that, uh, you know, and Anthony Scott, and David Mack, Miss Adina, I just go on and on. All the staff, yeah, that's right. But the, the, the outpouring of not only financial support, but time and energy and passion allows that team to do what they do for people like me. That's they right. They can't do it without them. Nope, they can't. That's very true. And that's a great, great parting thought. I appreciate both of you making time to join us on Pursuing Justice this was a great honor to have you with us. And I hope that people will gain a, a very new perspective on a case of wrongful conviction firsthand, listening to you, Dean, and listening to you, Danny. So thank you so much. And once again, um, would love your comments and thoughts on the program. My email now is pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. Thank you both. Um, enjoy the holidays. And also, I know you have a wedding date next year. So congratulations. On that. We, forgot to, we forgot to include that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we haven't picked a date. Oh, not yet, but so, sometime in 2020, right? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I really appreciate you uh, inviting us and being interested in uh, just being a really kind person and the things that you do for a lot of people. Thank you, Thanks. Dean. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye.